Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Paperbark Writing Melaleuca Bark Beetles squiggled sheets Airmail paper fine Under wizened exterior Each stratum more tender than above As though each is writing a letter to a younger self Sometimes the layers are exposed to allow for growth Welcome to 3CR Spoken Word. I'm Brendan Bonsack, and leading us into the program today was the voice of Kim Jeffs with her poem, Paperbark Writing. Uh, Kim is a person of three important hats, uh, among others, I'm sure, medical doctor, mother, and poet. And she's with me in the studio today to share some of her work. A warning to listeners that some pieces contain themes of domestic violence this morning. Welcome, Kim. That's my pleasure. You must be an incredibly busy person. How do you, how do you juggle these things? Uh, I would have to say that the writing comes in fits and starts and that the doctoring and the mothering are probably the things that take up most of my time. So writing tends to come either out of the blue when I'm sitting at a red light waiting for the lights to change and I see something interesting or it comes out at times where I push myself so usually in April when we there's the Facebook group the Dirty 30 challenge to with a prompt each day to to write 30 poems um does this poem come from that I can't yes yes it does it does come from the Dirty 30 the prompt was um write a letter to a younger self and most people were writing kind of letters literally to their younger self um sort of usually hey, it's not going to be that bad or, hey, do this thing differently or whatever. And, and I kind of wanted to steer away from that. And I was remembering writing letters because I'm old, writing letters on airmail paper to, to my friend in Germany. And, um, and that put me in mind of the paperback and how fine the kind of layers of the paperback are. So I think that was how that poem was born, if you like, because I am uh, very enamoured of the natural world, so I tend to take a lot of cues from the natural world. And a keen observer I see in your poetry. There's something of looking at things really, really closely and examining fine details. Where do you think that comes from? I suspect it's partially innate and partially through being a doctor. So one of the things that that is important to being a good doctor is to notice all the things that are going on in a room or, or for a person. So it's not just what they're telling you or what they're doing, but, you know, noticing the, the subtle ways people are interacting, you know, family members are interacting and so on that helps you read the situation and gain far more than, um, than if you just listen to what's being said. So little things can make a huge difference to your assessment of the person in front of you so I think that observation comes out of that but I but I like when I so notice detail I tend to notice juxtapositions and interplay or inherent contradictions in what I might be observing so it's observed but it's analyzed to within an inch of its life 
So I can't just notice that it's a neon cuckoo bee in the garden. I have to then think, well, the neon cuckoo bee preys on a blue-banded bee, so there must be blue-banded bees in my garden. And, you know, you know, every time I garden or cook something or, oh, you know, like until I'd started writing poetry, I hadn't noticed that mushrooms start to squeak when you're in the pan or that cabbage squeaks when you chop it with a knife or um, or I hadn't noticed the particular sound so much of, you know, like a peloton of bikes going past and that Doppler effect or all of those small things that you just notice more because that's the poetic sensibility, I suppose. It's mindfulness, really. So it's like your poetic obs. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, observations, yeah. I like that. Um, I might have to use that phrase now. <laughs> Let's go back to the past. Yes. Okay. We okay. have another poem here, which comes from your experience of the uh, Black Saturday bushfires, I believe. Yeah, that that's correct? right. Yeah. Leaving the mountain. I cannot smell the smoke, but above me the sky is tangerine or perhaps blood orange. Why do we so often seek edible metaphors? Unlike the fruit, this sky contains no moisture. In refracted light, we load life's cargo. Mine is quiet, womb wriggling stilled by adrenaline. My son's red slicked face too fearful to contemplate. We calmly pack the car. I leave you now your misguided hero's carapace impervious to my pleas. I toss the woolen blanket inside, a stupid, careless gesture, its ember-pocked fires your shield from glass-melt heat. There will be times I wish I had taken it with me. The car noses out of the driveway. It could drive this road itself. On this surfeit of molten tarmac, we travel alone, our descent slowed by a water truck, its load splashing, a liquid hypnotist, each pearled drop a promise, fluid counterpoint to peripheral flame. I glance to the right, for look I must, this fiery thunderhead inhales, sucking my lullabies from the air, it would inhale the car, but for the firmness of my grip. We reach the town, but do not stop. Smoke flanks that bitumen ribbon. I have threaded fire's needle. That's an excellent poem. It's brutal, though. The, the middle stands are about the blankets quite brutal brutal in what way the the blanket in question was thrown inside the house by me I should have kept it in the car that would have been the sensible thing to do because if you get trapped in a fire you should put a woolen blanket over you but instead it was used by my partner at the time to shield himself and and quite possibly saved his life and when I say there will be times I wish I had taken it with me. That means that there were times that I wished he hadn't survived, I guess. And and that was because we had a very rough time after the fires. And and that feels really brutal. And, and of course, I never really 
would have wanted that to have happened. So it feels really brutal and and it's interesting to me given where my head must have been when I was writing the poems because the genesis of me writing any poetry was in an art project that was part of a bushfire support group that I did and we created handcrafted books that we made, the paper, we bound them and so on and my idea was that I would write in the book my experience of the fires so that my children would have something that was created by me that was a personal history of the fires and I sat down to write prose and poems came out instead. The group was fantastic in enabling me to start writing and then we had some writers workshops and met you know well-published writers like Arnold Zabel and um, Lisa Jacobson who who did actually um, provide some mentorship to me very early on which was really lovely the whole writing of poems and performing of poems and becoming immersed for a while um, in the spoken word scene in Melbourne was healing and regenerative in a way that I hadn't expected at that time I was a sole parent to preschool children Um, I'm quite in a way socially isolated because I'd been taken away from my community so you know I was home and I couldn't get out and and so it was a way of connecting with people even on some level. After the bushfires there must have been a huge impact on families in the area. What were some of the effects that you saw? Um, oh, there was a, a great loss of family cohesion and a lot of well-documented rises in self-destructive behaviour and self-harm and, and also in family violence. And um, so the next poem is around family violence. It's called Fist. I watch its angry arc through treacle time, its fury almost graceful with a hint of haste. This clenched missive, each knuckle scripted, its disgust aimed at my nose. I'm sorry, I cry, but do not flinch. Is it this or the force of my gaze that arrests your fist? No imprint left, yet your message is written on me still. It's very chilling, but also very um, restrained it's almost clinical detachment, I think, which I guess I'm trained in clinical detachment. So is family violence something that you see in your work as a doctor? Oh, yeah. I'm a geriatrician by training and I I see the effects of family violence on women frequently and it's very distressing. But I also, on the other hand, see men who have been damaged by toxic masculinity and who have lived out their lives estranged from their family. And I see more of these men than you would expect, but it's because they're the ones who end up alone with no one to care for them, who end up in nursing homes or to need my assistance in the community because there's nobody else there to look after them. And that must have an impact on you personally. Is is that a burden to carry? Yes. I've been in homes where there was family violence happening around me, where my personal safety's been jeopardised, I suppose. And there's only 
a certain amount you can intervene with, both from a professional level and from a legal uh, standpoint as well. So it can be quite tricky, particularly if the perpetrator of the family violence is the one who's my patient. And so there is that vicarious trauma, and I guess writing about it helps to release that on some level. Is there an ethical dilemma that comes up if you're going to write a poem about someone who actually exists? Yeah. Yep, and there are maybe two poems in existence that are about actual individual patients that I've seen, but I've never published them in print and I never will, um, even though they're written in a way that, that they, they would be highly unlikely anyone could identify any particular individual from it. But I just feel that I can't do that. I write about myself in a way that is leaving myself quite bare and open, um, but I don't have a right to do that to, to, to a patient. So the writing itself is a kind of, uh, it's a way of you processing it for yeah. yourself. Yeah. Even if nobody else will see it. Absolutely. And, 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 and to try and nut out the ethics of it or the, the pain of it or, or, or whatever. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. When it was discovered that the dwarf planet Pluto had uh, an icy heart, someone said, you know, poets, you need to get onto this and write about it. And, and so this poem was born, and I guess it looks at that toxic masculinity and those lonely old men I see on a very regular basis in my work. The first crystal forms, Nidus in an infant heart, His worn-eyed mother passes him to a stranger, leaves him for a thousand lifetimes. By the time she returns from her first haircut in a year, the crystal is lodged next to his aorta. Her sunlight embrace fails to melt it. At school, these frozen moats grow with each and every taunt. Each icicle barb embedded in cardiac muscle Several of them coalesce the moment his father says, boys don't cry. His parents marvel at his barren eyes when his dog runs off, as if an orphan rock at the edge of a solar system. They discern no impact scar. The boy has become adept at mending his heart with ice. When his first girlfriend says she can no longer tolerate his lack of emotional availability, likens him to a cold grey stone, he watches, mute, her fire unknown to him. The frost gains momentum, glacially spreads to encase his right atrium. By the time he is made redundant, both atria are encased in salty pack ice, Clot incubates in that cardiac refrigerator. After the stroke, he orbits his family in an ever-increasing spiral, would spin off into another galaxy were he not dependent on his wife, who still flinches if he tries to raise his hand. Her death causes his right ventricle to freeze. 
swollen ankles the first sign of a failing heart. He isn't well liked at the nursing home. Mostly silent, he sits in his room at the end of the corridor. No visitors make that trek. His children revolve around warmer bodies. A vanilla sponge from the kitchen marks each successive year until all he can swallow is ice cream. When she comes on for the night shift, his half-moon face is turned to the window. Sallow, skin tinged with uremic frost, his ragged breath punctuates their silence. Returned to infancy by dementia creep, both ventricles encased. She crushes his tablets, mixing them with strawberry jam. Here, Pluto, this will help you breathe. Noor takes his cool, thin hand to her cheek, whispers in his ear. One convulsive throw melts the ice cage. She closes his eyes, notes they are wet. It's almost like a film, this one, isn't it? It's, I think, my longest poem. And yes, each I imagined each vignette, I suppose, in the life and tried to relate it somehow to matters astronomical, but also link it very closely in what I know about people and illness. And, you know, I'm imagining him as a smoker and a drinker who's developed heart failure because he's not looked after himself, if you like, or... Um, but he's not looked after himself because he's been poisoned at a very young age and, you know, what the behaviours of a man should be. By bringing in the Pluto reference and the, the reference to planets, it also brings in a sense of the eternal to me. These, these human foibles are inevitable. They're going on all the time. It, it does. It's that, and and that kind of, the, the the concept of the orbit of the planet too, and that this goes around and around and around again in generations and so on. Absolutely. But Pluto is interesting because it has an irregular orbit. True. So maybe there's hope. So, there's, so maybe there's hope. <laughs> we can yeah. kick it out of out of kilter. The feminist in me says it has to change and it will change and we will make it change, and the mother in me lets my sons cry and express emotion and hopes very much that they will not grow up to be men like this man. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. I am speaking with Kim Jeffs this morning on 3CR Spoken Word. If any of the themes that we've been discussing have raised concerns for you, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange is available to help on 1300 134 130 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 Now, let's move on to another topic, the topic it seems most poets hate to write about, uh, love. Uh, Kim, I believe you have a love poem here to share with us today. Yes. My first ever love poem, in fact, I didn't didn't ever write any of those love poems as a as a teenager or as a young adult. Um, I was too busy studying to write poems and not meeting boys at that point. Anyway, so um, so yes, this is my first love poem, which is intuitively titled "Carbon Dioxide." 
Face sleep slack. Your lips whistle slightly with each exhalation. Your right cheek rests on the pillow of my left elbow. Our noses close enough for the hairs you won't let me pluck to tickle. My right arm drapes across the soft pelt of your back, fingers seeking the smooth valley of your spine. I enjoy the play of texture, squash my breasts against your chest, rest my right knee on your thigh. Though your breaths are quicker than mine, I synchronise my intake with each lip whistle, brave those ticklish hairs, breathe in your waste breath so that I might merge further with you. In my slack muscle trance, lost in the detail of the lines round your eyes, each fingertip on my skin, my idling mind wonders if your excess carbon dioxide is responsible for the giddiness of love. And that one was actually written while I was lying there and he was asleep and I was just looking at him. And, and you know, so I was paying, it was that kind of mindful, you know, where, where, where is all the, where are all the bits of my body? What, what does he look like? What does, you know, what can I smell? What can I hear? What can I, you know, feel? And, and trying to keep, obviously I didn't actually physically write it because I couldn't move, but, um, but it was all, kind of nested in my memory and then that night I wrote the first draft of it and I'm a scientist at heart so there'll always be some quirky scientific kind of nubbin at the at the base of most things that I think about so that's the carbon dioxide thing you know I can imagine I was even trying to calculate the percent or it could have just been love or it could have just been love you're right (laughs) there is that possibility (laughs) <laughs> it probably was, I think. How long was it before you could share this poem with your partner? It, it does feel daunting to to show somebody you love the the love poem that you've written, even at my ripe old age. Why do you think that is? I experience that too, and uh, I ponder why why that happens. Do you think you put an extra set of expectations, you know, that you want it to be right? For yeah. Them? And, well, you want it to be right for that person too. You don't want them to feel icky or or trapped by it or to be feeling like it's twee or hallmark cardish or it does feel emotionally bold to write a love poem and to, to go out there and say to that person, even though you've said it a million times already or shown it a million times already, to say in writing, you know, and share with the world, you know, hey, I love you and this is why. And I think writing happy poems or writing love poems is much, much harder than writing, and I'm, and I know I'm not alone in saying this, and much, much harder than writing about sad or traumatic or negative stuff. Um and and so that's that's actually been a, a complete change of my whole outlook on life that's happened in the time that I've been writing poetry and recovering after the fires. Um, this whole growing thing has seen me be far more positive, though I can hear my partner at home listening to this going, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so your next poem. Yes. <laughs> 
is about football. It's about football. It's called Blokes and Pigskins. I've always thought the people who watch blokes chase a pigskin oval round a muddy field, hell-bent on kicking that daftly shaped missile through a pair of sticks, were capable only of grunts, like the erstwhile wearers of the ball's leather, only less intelligent. I felt much the same when people spoke of other religions. That big bloke in the sky with his long white beard would probably be kicking that poor dead pig around a celestial field, though I guess it wouldn't be muddy unless he was partial to getting dirty. I've been to a few matches now, worn your team's colours, roared myself hoarse as they've come from behind to cardiac arrest victory. That sort that sends fans to meet that hirsute bloke in the sky and about which poems are written. We've held hands in churches, in mosques stood slack-jawed, talked as the stars swirled of meaning and uncertainty, how there's no bloke in the sky and that Sharon's are actually made of cowhide. I'm no convert to any religion, but I've learned quite a bit about faith. It's not really about football at all, is it? No, it's not really about football. It's a love poem too um, for my partner because he follows a football team and he, he also describes himself as having a religious faith. And they were both things that I struggled very deeply with on on a personal level. Um, and that's kind of what love does, isn't it? it? It it makes us challenge our ideas and challenge the way we we live and and grow. And so I choose to, rather than railing against the horribleness, to present the positive. Um, positive alternative, I suppose. Thank you very much for coming in today. That's my pleasure. Kim Jeff's work will be published this year in the Dan Poets Anthology, which is a collaboration between Melbourne's longest-running poetry gig and Fire Station Print Studio, uh, which is a community of visual artists who specialise in printmaking. It's going to be a wonderful book, and I think it's scheduled for release in October this year, 2018, so keep your ears peeled for that. Uh, Dan Poetry, of course, runs every Saturday at 2pm at the Dan O'Connell Hotel in uh, Carlton with a feature poet and open mic. Today's program has featured music by Victorian musician Lisa Gerrard in collaboration with Patrick Cassidy from the album Immortal Memory. And that is all we have time for. Don't forget you can listen to the program via podcast at 3cr.org.au or your favourite podcasting app. Tune in every Thursday at 9am and to keep up to date with poetry events in Melbourne, why not try out the MSW website at www.melbournespokenword.com. I'm Brendan Bonsack. Thank you for listening. Thank you.